Okay, Matthew 25. <clears throat> Matthew 25, and we'll read verses 31 through 46, and we'll, that's where we'll be at tonight. Matthew 25, verse 31 <clears throat> says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they uh, themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that it is preparing us, Lord, for uh, the day of judgment. Lord, knowing that this present world will come to an end, Lord, on that great day, and that all men... Lord, the, all the nations will be gathered before you, and that, Lord, you will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So, Lord, may we take this to heart. Lord, may we not deceive ourselves, Lord, thinking that uh, we can somehow escape that great day of judgment, but see that it is surely coming and that we must be accounted among your people, Lord, as those who are your sheep. So, Father, we pray that we would... Uh, carefully examine our own life, Lord, that we would be watchful over our own soul, and Lord, also that of our brothers in Christ, Lord, seeing that the evidence of our salvation is so manifestly seen in the way that we care and love for one another. So, Lord, teach us tonight, Lord, to take these things very seriously, but Lord, also to be able to judge ourselves truly, and Lord, that there would be found in us Lord, a believing heart manifesting itself in the fruits of love, both toward you and toward our neighbor. So, Lord, be with us, be our guide, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so in uh, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, 
all of this chapter, and really even the chapter before, is leading up to this great day of judgment uh, that is coming upon the world. This is what Jesus has been teaching about uh, over the course of these chapters. The need to be prepared for the coming day of judgment so that we are found as faithful, wise slaves doing the will of our master whenever the master returns. He's used various parables uh, to teach this. Last week, we saw the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. In both cases, there was a delay in the coming of the bridegroom or in the coming of the master who went off into a distant country. And while he was away, he expected his slaves or these virgins to be prepared for his imminent return. And then there is a distinction made between the wise and the prudent virgins and those that were foolish, between the good, faithful, wise slaves and the foolish slave who was not found doing the will of his master. And these uh, parables were used to teach the need to be prepared because Jesus says that we do not know the day nor the hour. So we must always be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, in 31 to 46, he's teaching without parables. He's not using parables here. He's teaching directly, straightforwardly, telling us that this is what is going to happen. And we have to keep this in mind, that this present world will come to an end one day, and that day is the day of judgment. The day of judgment is the divider between this present world and the world to come. Yet whatever happens in this life is what will dictate what will happen to us in the life to come. Those who are believing, who have true faith in Christ, who are counted among His sheep, among His people in this life, then in the life to come, they will enter into eternal life. But those who are evil and unbelieving, who are wicked, who are not counted among His sheep or His people, but rather are the reprobate or the goats, they will enter into eternal death. And when that day comes, that day of judgment, the eternal destiny of a man, either for eternal life or eternal death, is fixed, it is certain, and it is irrevocable. And that condition will never change. And this is why it is so important for us to be prepared for the day of judgment and for the life to come. Because once we enter into that life to come, then our standing, our eternal destiny is fixed, it is certain, and it will never be revoked, and there can never be any change. So if we enter into eternal death, it is eternal and it will never end. It is eternal torment in the lake of fire. But if we enter into eternal life, it also is eternal and it will never end. And it will be eternal blessing and glory and honor and joy with the Lord. So this is what is at stake. And this is why it is so important for us to understand the day of judgment, to be prepared for the day of judgment, to live each day in light of this coming judgment of the Lord. And Jesus is speaking about this so frequently because it is so pivotal, so important for this, for, for our own life and for living in the fear of the Lord and having a life of wisdom before God. This is to live the life of wisdom. This is what the book of Proverbs is teaching. It is preparing us for the day of judgment, to stand before Christ. And we talked about this even on Sunday, right? That the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He penetrates even to the division of soul and spirits, joints and marrow, and He's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And every creature is laid bare and open before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. 
And who is that that we will give an account to? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and each person will receive what is his due at that time. And this is what Jesus is teaching here. So very, very important that we understand this. And this is a doctrine that is rarely believed in the churches today. Very, very few believe it. They may believe that there's a day of judgment, but on that day, everyone's going to get in. Everyone's going to get in, except Hitler, Stalin, maybe a few people like that. Trump, you know, some real horrible people, the way that they uh, uh, talk about them. But all of us, all of our loved ones, all of our friends and family, we're all going to make it. It's all going to be okay. But the Bible teaches the opposite, that it is a very hard, narrow way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And it is a broad and easy way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go therein. That the vast majority do not give attention to these things, but will be counted amongst the goats. And so it is very important for us, who are professing to be believers and Christians, that we make sure that our calling and election is Sure, that it is true, that it is certain, that we are true professors indeed and not false professors of faith in Christ. This also is what the book of Hebrews is dealing with extensively from cover to cover. The difference, the distinction between true and false profession of faith and the need for us to make sure that we are on that straight and narrow path that leads to life. We must be careful in the way that we walk because of the day of judgment. So, Let's pick up there in verse 31. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Here, the one coming is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, this title, is the most uh, preferred, favorite title that Jesus uses whenever He's speaking about Himself. So He's referring to Himself, and He's referring to Himself as the Son of Man. Now this comes from several places in the Old Testament, but the most prominent is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 to 14, this is the phrase that is used here, and this was a passage that was interpreted, even by the Jews, even by the unbelieving Jews, to be referring to the Messiah, to the Messiah who is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Daniel 7, 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here, he's like a son of man that there are similarities between this person who's coming to the Ancient of Days and mankind. And we know this to be true from Hebrews chapter 2, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he also likewise partook of the same things. He is a man, but he's like a son of man. He is not merely a man. He is also more than a man. He is fully man, but also he is the divine son of God. God in human flesh, who is here the one that inherits the nations in this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom and dominion that is given to him. And this is what Christ has as both as the mediator, right? As the Christ, as the Messiah, as God and man, he is the one who has recaptured or reclaimed the dominion that was lost by Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam lost this kingdom. Now Christ has reclaimed it, and so He is the rightful ruler and judge 
over all of the nations, right? The whole world in the fullness of it belongs to Christ, both as the creator, but also as the mediator or as the redeemer. And he is the one that is given this kingdom by the father and it will be an everlasting kingdom, a dominion that will never come to an end. This is the son of man who is coming. And here he comes in his glory, in his glory. When he came in his first coming, he came in his humiliation. He came in a lowly form as a servant, right? In a humble way. So humble that he was despised and rejected by men, right? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces, right? He was despised and we esteemed him not. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says in Philippians chapter 2. So in his first coming, he came with great humility. He came as a servant. He came in this very humble way. And most people, when they saw Christ, they could not see his glory, right? It was hidden from him. However, at his second coming, he is not coming in his humiliation. Rather, he's coming with all of his glory on display. So when the Son of Man comes at the second coming, He will come in His glory. And this glory is twofold, both His divine glory, the glory that He possessed with the Father from before the foundation of the world. As the second person of the Trinity, as the Son of God, He possesses all of the glory of the divine nature. It is all found in Christ. And this glory will be manifested when He returns in his second coming, but also his glorified humanity. That Christ, when he rose from the dead, did not rise with the same humanity or the same body that he died with, but rather his body has been glorified. He has this powerful, strong, glorious body that has been bestowed upon him through the resurrection of the dead. And this glory will also be apparent and seen by all men when he returns, both the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and also the glory as the true uh, Adam, the true humanity, uh, mankind in the person of Jesus Christ, the firstborn from among the dead. John chapter 17, verse 5, speaks of the glory of Christ as the divine Son of God. John 17 and verse 5. John 17, 5 says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This glory has to be His divine glory because it was the glory that He possessed with the Father before the world was even created. Before the world was created, before mankind had been formed, Jesus possessed glory with the Father for all eternity as the divine Son of God. This glory belongs to Christ. And now he's asking the Father to glorify Him with this glory again, that people might see and know and recognize that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and that all of the glory of the divine nature dwells in Him, right? It is possessed by him. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this speaks of the glory of his human nature as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. And this glory he will share with us. His divine glory is for himself, but his 
glorified humanity is for us. We will have this glory as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is the body that Jesus possesses now as the mediator between God and man, as the resurrected, risen Lord. His body at his death was a perishable body, but now it is imperishable. It was a dishonorable body, not that it had sin in it, but it was dishonorable in that it was filled with weakness. But now it is a honorable body. It was a weak body, now it is a powerful body. It was a natural body, now it is a spiritual body. And that is the body that we also will possess at our resurrection when we are raised gloriously as well. Then where you see these two things combined, Matthew 17, Matthew 17, 1 to 8. Matthew 17, there, here before his death, Jesus gave to three of the disciples a vision or a glimpse of this glory at the transfiguration. Matthew 17, 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So here, Jesus was transfigured in this way, and His glory was seen. That's how He will come when He comes His second coming. This transfigured Christ will be who He is in all of His glory, and that is the one who will come in His glory. And also it says, and all the angels with Him. The holy angels of God will accompany Christ when He returns at His second coming. He will lead this great procession of angels from heaven down to earth to execute judgment upon the world. And we know that there are myriads and myriads of these holy angels, and they will accompany Christ at His second coming. So this is a display of glory that this world has never seen, right? right. Never seen ever before. The glory that Christ will come will surpass, right? When uh, conquering armies a king would go into some defeated city. They would parade, or when they returned back to their home city, they would parade in in such a way as to manifest and display their glory by coming and showing all their power, all of their might, all of the things that they possess. Well, this is what Christ is doing when He comes to the earth in His second coming. He's coming with His glory, and He's coming with His holy angels, and this will be seen and manifested to all mankind at this time. So they will come with Christ. And here, when He comes, He will sit on His glorious throne. He comes to sit on His throne. And His throne is established for the purpose of judgment. The King rules 
from his throne. He pronounces his judgments there on the throne. And this is what Christ is coming to do at his second coming, to judge the world in righteousness. And this is the very reason for God creating the world, is that he might judge the world in righteousness by his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what he will come to do at the second coming. Psalm chapter 9, verse 7 says that God has here established his throne for the purpose of judgment, for judgment. Psalm chapter 9 and verse 7 says such. Psalm 9 verse 7. But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. And He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. So He comes to establish His throne for judgment. And when He does, He will do so with perfect righteousness. Then verses 32 and 33. Who will He judge? <clears throat> All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Here, he will gather all the nations, meaning all men from Adam until the end of the world, every last one of them will be gathered before Christ and Christ as their rightful ruler and king will execute judgment upon all of the nations. Because who belongs to or who owns all the nations? To whom do they belong? They have been given to Christ by God the Father. He has the right to execute judgment upon them. We all live under His domain. He is the one that we will answer to. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. He is the judge over all other judges. And ultimately, all of us will stand before Christ. Whether we live in a Christian nation, or whether we live in a Muslim nation, or a secular nation, or an atheist nation, or a Buddhist nation, or a Hindu nation. There are no nations like this. There are as a subset in terms of culture and in terms of what people are practicing today. But ultimately, all of the nations are owned and ruled by Christ. And we all will answer to Him. Right? This is the way it will be. All nations will be gathered before Christ. And this is what Psalm 2 is speaking of. In Psalm 2, it talks about the nations raging against God and against His anointed one, right? They are in a rage, the kings and the rulers of the, world, of the world, they take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And what do they want to do? They want to bust their chains apart, right? They don't want God ruling over them and they don't want God establishing Christ as the judge of the world. And so they seek to revoke and overthrow the very rule and reign of Christ. But will they be successful in this? No. no, because no matter how they might foment and rage against Christ, the Father has made a decree and He has determined to put Christ, His anointed one, on the throne and to give to Him the power and authority to judge the world in righteousness. And He is the ultimate authority. So there's nothing that they can do to stop this. We cannot stop or keep from coming to fruition the judgment of Christ. All we can do is be prepared for it, but we cannot avoid it and we cannot stop it. All the nations will be gathered before Christ and he will judge the world in righteousness. And when he does that, he will bring about separation. 
That's what he's doing in his judgment. He is determining what is true of a man and then separating men into one of two camps based upon his determination of who they are. And according to Hebrews 4.12, which we did this last Sunday, he makes this separation on the basis not merely of the outward actions and the words of men, but even on the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So he's able to see and discern what is true of a man on the inside so that he's able to perfectly, righteously separate people from one another as a sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right? In this life, the righteous and the wicked dwell together. This is the way it is in this present world. Yes, we are to be separate from them in that we're not to take part in their sins, but there is no place where we can go and be with only Christians and not be around the wicked and not be around the world, right? You can't go to Walmart, that's for sure. You can't go uh, to the restaurant. You can't go anywhere, right, into your own neighborhood because likely there's going to be unbelievers there, right? No matter where you go, this is the way it is. We work with, we go to school with, we live in neighborhoods with, we shop with those who are unbelievers. The righteous and the wicked are existing side by side in this way in this present life. But in the life to come, that's not going to be the case. There will be a separation of people and the righteous will be consigned to eternal life to heaven and the wicked will be consigned to eternal death and to the place of torment. And that separation will take place on the day of judgment. Jesus taught this earlier in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, 24, this is what Jesus is teaching. The distinction between the way the righteous and wicked live together in this life versus what will happen in the life to come. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you gather up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. So now in this life, the wheat and tares, they grow up together, right? Side by side in this way. But at the end of the age, 
the angels will go forth, and that's what Jesus comes in His glory with His angels. And His angels are the ministers that He uses to go into the nations to gather the people. And then based upon His judgment, they are the ones who separate them from one another. And the wheat is put into the barn, and the tares will be burned with unquenchable fire. Here in our passage, the allusion that He's using is sheep and goats. But wheat and tares is the same exact thing. One good and the other is bad. So, at the ju judgment of Christ, all men will be assigned either with the sheep or with the goats. And this separation will be done with perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness by Christ. There are not one single sheep that will accidentally be assigned with the goats. And there is not one single goat who will accidentally be assigned with the sheep. It will not happen. But it will be with perfection and with righteousness that Jesus will make a distinction and separation among the people. And here, the sheep and the goats are describing, using it as an illustration of one's spiritual standing. Their spiritual standing before Christ. Spiritually, we are either a sheep or we are a goat. We are either wheat or we are tares. This is the way it is. The sheep are the elect who have been regenerated, who have been granted the gift of faith and repentance, who have been justified by faith, and who have been sanctified in this life, and who have produced the deeds of repentance, right? The good fruit in keeping with repentance. The goats are the reprobates. They are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are those who have evil, unbelieving hearts. They are those who are worldly, who are condemned, right? Who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but rather bear the fruits in, of their father who is the devil, right? The father who is the devil. Okay, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here, those on his right, which are the sheep, they are the ones who he says are blessed by my father which is important to see because ultimately the basis for a sheep being a sheep is the blessing of God. It is the gift of God. God's favor, His mercy, His grace, His blessing comes upon that person because naturally we're all goats, right? We're all goats according to our first father who is Adam. When Adam fell in the garden, he fell into a state of sin of goathood, right? And we all fell into that state as well. Spiritually speaking, we are all born or we enter into this world as goats. And the thing that makes us go from a goat to a sheep is the miracle of God, the work of God that is based upon His blessing and His favor given to men without any merit from them. It is the unmerited blessing and favor of God, the free gift of God given to them. They are blessed of the Father, and He says, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This kingdom that they are going to enter into is a kingdom that has been prepared for them. Right? God has designed it. Ultimately now, it's for the glory of God, and it's for the glory of Christ. 
But our benefit is that this kingdom, the way that God has chosen to glorify Himself and to glorify His Son, Jesus Christ, is by granting to Him His people who will inherit this kingdom and He will give to them all the blessings of that kingdom. The inheritance, the, the privileges of being a child of God will be conferred upon the sheep for all eternity and they will receive the blessing of God. All of the benefits that Christ has earned by virtue of His life and His death and His resurrection, all of those blessings He gives to us. He shares them with us. The riches of His glory, His kingdom is our kingdom. So it is a kingdom that is His, but in a very real and true way, it is our kingdom as well. And He says it is a kingdom that God has prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That this was in the mind of God when He created the world. This is how far back this work of redemption and salvation and ultimately the glorification of the saints, it goes back before the very foundation of the world. This was in the mind and in the heart of God when He created the world. This is the end for which He created the world, is to make this distinction to manifest His glory in vessels of mercy and in vessels of wrath. And in the vessels of mercy, His glory is seen in the bountiful blessings, His kindness, His generosity, His graciousness. All of these things are manifested in them because they are tokens or vessels, trophies of the very grace and mercy of God. This kingdom has been prepared for them and they will receive it as their reward on the day of judgment. Luke chapter 12, Luke 12 verse 32. This is our, our uh, comfort and hope in this life. Luke 12 verse 32 it says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid, little flock, because in this life, the flock, the sheep, in contrast to the goats, is very little. They're marginalized. They're weak. They have no power. They have no standing, right? This is the way what we experience in this present life. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. And many times we're treated like the very refuse of the earth. But he tells us, don't be afraid of this because God's ultimate purpose in the life to come is to give to this little, marginalized, insignificant flock of people to give to them the kingdom of God. He's not giving it to the millionaires and billionaires, unless they're true believers, but He's not giving it to them. He's not giving it to the kings, to the wise men, to the noblemen, to the powerful men of the earth, because not many of them are chosen. But typically it is those who are of no account, who are very insignificant in the eyes of this world, but not in the eyes of God. And God's determination is to grant to us the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God as our inheritance. So can we then persevere through many tribulations if this is the end goal of our salvation? Absolutely, we can do this, right? Because look at what awaits us in the life to come. Why would we give up this kingdom just to avoid a little bit of hardships and sufferings in this present life? It would be very, very foolish to do so. So we must press on until we enter the kingdom of God. Now verse 35, the evidence. The evidence of divine blessing. Like, as I said, ultimately the foundation is the divine blessing of God. 
where God bestows His salvation upon a man by His miracle, transforming that man from a goat into a sheep. But when that takes place, that person is not the same. He is a changed man. And that change from... A, there's one type of behavior consistent with a goat, and there's another type of behavior consistent with a sheep. And when a person is made into a sheep by God, it will manifest itself in very real, outward, tangible ways in this present life. That's what he's bringing up here in verses 35 to 36. He's not saying that these works, this fruit, is the basis of their salvation. He's already established that the basis is the blessing of God that comes to us on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, when that blessing comes upon a man, it does not leave him as he was. It changes him, and that change will be seen in the life of godliness that he lives. Notice what he says. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. In, visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Here, this change is seen in the new creature, right? He doesn't live the life that he used to live. In our sin, we hate God, we hate our fellow man, and we even hate ourselves. We live a life of hatred, of enmity, of strife toward God and toward all men. But when we are saved by God, the result is the love of God comes into our heart. And as a result of God's love in us, now we will love God. And who else will we love? We'll love our fellow man, but especially the household of faith, our fellow saints, because we see that in this life, our brothers and sisters in Christ, they are the very body of Christ. He is the head and they are the body. They are united to him in such a way so that to love our fellow saint is to love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are one in the same. And how can someone have the love of Christ in him and he not love the very body of Christ? And this is what is true of the sheep. They have love for the body of Christ, for Christ, for God. And their love of God is manifested here in their love for one another. This is what they did in this life. Love of God and love of brother always go hand in hand. They are inseparable. It is impossible to love God and at the same time hate your brother. You can't do it, right? It is impossible for this to be the case. 1 John chapter 4. Much of 1 John is dealing with this very issue. Many times he talks about it in the book of 1 John, but we'll look at 1 John chapter 4. Verses 19 to 21. First John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 25, 35, and 36. Notice there, first in 19, we love because He first loved us. The reason that we have this love in us is because God first loved us. That's what Jesus says when He says, Come you who are blessed by my Father. 
blessed by the Father because God the Father has chosen to love us before the foundation of the world and then has manifested that love to us in our redemption, in our salvation. That is the basis for the love that we have for one another. God loved us first, and as a result of God's love for us that saves us from our sins, changes us, now we love God and we love our brothers, right? Simultaneously at the same time. And here, love of God and love of brother are hand in hand. You cannot love God who you've not seen and hate your brother. It's impossible, he says. If we love God, we will love our brothers. And that's what Jesus is describing here. He was hungry, and they gave him something to eat. Thirsty, they gave them, him something to drink. A stranger, and they visited him. Naked, uh, and they clothed him. Sick and in prison, and they came and visited him. Here, these are describing various hardships, right, sufferings, uh, that will attend to the righteous in this present life. In this life, we will have our tribulations. And those tribulations will come in various forms. Sometimes hunger, sometimes thirst, sometimes we will be on the run, and so we will be a stranger in some new city, right? This has happened to many believers. Naked and exposure, sick, right? We can become sick or even thrown into prison. When one of Christ's sheep sees one of his fellow sheep suffering under an affliction like this, he will be moved with compassion, and his movement of compassion will mean that he will come to his aid. He will come and do whatever he can to relieve this brother of his affliction. So if he is hungry, he will give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, he will give him something to drink. If he's a stranger fleeing because of persecution to some other city, and he finds out about it, he will welcome him into his own home. If he is naked and exposed, he will give him his own clothes to wear, right? Whatever he can do. In prison, he will come visit him. If they're sick, they will come and visit them in this way. Whatever can be done to come to the aid and relief of the brother in this life, one sheep will always do this for the other. This is the way it will be. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And this is as natural for the spirit and for the believer as breathing. This is the life of faith. We will do this for one another. And if we don't have compassion in this way, then it shows that God does not have compassion on us and that the love of God is not in us. How can we see our brothers afflicted in this way and not be moved with pity? Right? We ought to even do this just for our fellow man if there is legitimate needs in this way. We should do this even if we don't know who they are, but especially someone who is of the household of faith, and especially someone that we have some relationship with that has been established over the course of time. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. If you have the world's goods, you have means, and you see your brother who has a need, a legitimate need, and you have the ability to meet that need, how can you close your heart against him? 
no compassion, not moved with pity to do something for your fellow man. If you're not moved in that way, how does God's love abide in you? He's saying it's impossible that you have the love of God in you. Because how can you hit yourself experience God's love? Because you were in a more miserable situation than your brother. You were dead in your sins. You were naked, right? You were hungry. You were there. All the things here, spiritually speaking, is what was true of us in our sin. And yet God came and had compassion on us and brought us up out of this pit of misery and set us here on solid ground and clothed us and gave us all of the spiritual riches in Christ. And now we have the opportunity to, in a small way, do the same thing for our brother, and yet we refuse to do so. How can the love of God be in that person? This is the same as the parable of the wicked servant. The one who was forgiven this great debt 10,000 talents by his master, by the king, but then went out and choked his fellow slave who owed him a very small debt in comparison. We have a debt of love to our brothers. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. It says in Romans chapter 13, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. In the basis of this debt of love we owe to one another is the love that God has poured out on us. And will God ever expect us to love our brothers more than He's loved us? Impossible. It's impossible, right? Impossible that this would be the case. Um, Now, the parable that clearly depicts this, almost every one of these is hit in Luke chapter 10, 30 to 37. I thought about looking up Uh, passages that dealt with every one of these, hunger, thirst, you know, nakedness in prison. But instead, we'll just hit Luke 10. Luke 10, 30 to 37, nearly all of these are here in this passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it'll come back up later when we're dealing with the goats. Luke 10, 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came up upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion." And came to him, and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And they said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Here, this man that was... Uh, the victim of these robbers and left in this horrible situation, when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion for him. And his compassion, he didn't close his heart against him. He opened his heart to him, moved him to then come to his aid, to do what he could to preserve his life and to render aid to him. And this was someone who was a complete stranger to him. And yet, this is what he did. Well, shouldn't we do this for one another? And we're not even strangers here. We all know each other. And some of us have known each other for many years. We should love one another in this way. Also, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. 
here the believers in Hebrews are commended because of sharing in sufferings with their fellow saints. Hebrews 10.32 But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. Here, they were themselves being persecuted, but also they showed sympathy. They had compassion on those who were among them that were put in prison. They did not neglect them. They didn't refuse to go visit them because if we go visit them, then they're going to associate us with them and they might throw us in prison. And that's what happened to them. Not that they threw them in prison, but they were seizing their property as a result of their visiting them in prison. But did this keep them from doing it? No, because they were moved with compassion for their fellow brother. They had compassion and love for them because of what God had done for them. Here then is the evidence. The evidence is seen in the love for the brethren. Then verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Here the righteous, when they hear this, are astonished. When did we do any of these things? Right? They are seeing their own works in these good deeds of love in a lesser light than what Christ is seeing them. Right. Right? Christ is magnifying the greatness of these things, but when they're looking at it, they're just doing their duty and they're just doing what is good and right in the sight of God toward one another. When did we ever see you in this way? Right? Christ, you were not here on earth. Right? If you were hungry, would have, we would have given you something to eat gladly. If you were thirsty, we would have gladly given you something to drink or any of these other things. But we never saw you, your person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in any of these situations and come to your aid. So they are astonished at what Christ is saying to them. But then what is the interpretation? 40. The king will answer and say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. When we are loving our brothers, the way that Christ views it, the way that God views it, is as if we are doing it directly to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When I love you or when you love me, if you're doing it out of love for God because of our common faith, the way Christ views that is as if you are doing it to Him. And He rewards us as if we did it to Him. Though He is not here with us visibly and physically, He is here with us spiritually, and His Spirit is here in the body of Christ, amongst the members of the body, so that to love the body of Christ is reckoned by Christ as loving Himself and doing it for Him. And Christ sees these things. He sees it and He is rewarding it. Which also goes, and we'll talk about this more on Sunday, when Jesus, or when the apostle in Hebrews 4 is talking about all things being open and bare to the one to whom we give an account, it doesn't only mean our sin, it also means our good deeds. Right. He sees these things. He sees whatever small, insignificant things in our own mind. 
something that we do, we're moved with compassion for one of our brothers or sisters in Christ. We hear of some affliction, some hardship they're going through, and we're moved with compassion, and we do something to try to brighten their day, to try to alleviate that affliction, to let them know, to affirm to them our love for them, right? Whatever small thing that that may, that may be, Christ sees that. And when we do that to one another, we're doing it to Him. And then He knows what is prompting that. He knows what is motivating that. He sees the intention of the heart, that it is compassion, it is love. And He's going to bring all that to light on the Day of Judgment as well. It's not just the sin, but also it is the good deeds. And here, when He's talking about the sheep, He's not talking about their sin. What is He bringing forward? He's bringing forward their righteousness, their righteousness, their love for one another, their good deeds, and then He is rewarding them on the basis of what God has done in them. Right? This is His goodness and kindness. Okay, a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When we join ourselves to the Lord, we are one spirit with him. Now, in the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 6, the purpose is then flee immorality, right? You are united to Christ, so don't join to a prostitute or a harlot, seeing that to do so, you are joining Christ to that, right? So flee immorality, but the principle for that is that we are one with Christ, one spirit with Him. And this is how we should view one another in the body of Christ. Also, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is not the head of the wife, as Christ also. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Just as husband and wife are no longer two, but become one, one flesh, so also Jesus with His church. The two become one. We are one with Christ. We are members of His body, right? We are the members and He is the head. So to love the member is also to love the head. To love the wife is to also love the husband. If you do good to my wife Amy, you are also doing good to me. If you do good to my children, you are also doing good to me because we are one family, right? One body, right? One flesh together. So to do something for them is at the same time to do it unto me, 
And this is how it is with Christ in His church. So that when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ takes it as if we are loving Him. And then Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We die in our sin, and now we are hidden in Christ with God. Hidden in Him. So that, again, to love one another is to love Christ. Okay, then verse 41. Now to the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Here, those on his left, and this would be true of all men, all unbelieving men, but especially here he's singling out false professors. False professors of religion because later they will refer to him as their Lord as their Lord. So he's making this distinction between true believers and false believers here in this, in this passage. Here, he tells them to depart. Depart from me, you accursed ones. To depart is to be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this present life, even unbelievers experience many aspects of God's kindness, His patience, His goodness, his blessing, right? Their lives are not filled with all of the miseries that they could be filled with, right? This because the punishment of eternal death has been postponed or delayed because of the patience of God. But at this point, that is all gone. Now they are receiving the reward for their deeds. And the punishment of eternal fire, eternal damnation is coming upon them where they will experience none of the goodness of God. The unbelieving, the wicked in the life to come will not experience any of God's kindness, His mercy, the general love that God has on man. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous and wicked. He causes the rain to fall on both. He gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. God does this for all men. But in the life to come, they will only know His wrath, His fury, His hatred, His judgment, His condemnation will be upon them. That's why when He says, depart from me, depart from my goodness. Not that they depart from the presence of the Lord. Because there in hell, the wicked are being tormented by the Lord. God's presence fills all things. Even there in hell, they are experiencing the wrath of God. But here, this departing is a departing from the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God. They will experience none of these things for all eternity. And here he calls them accursed ones. Accursed, because they are under the curse of God. When a man is dead in his sins, he is under God's curse. That curse will ultimately be realized and manifested on the day of judgment it will come upon him and he will receive eternal fire, eternal punishment and damnation as the curse that is upon him. Deuteronomy 29, 18-21. Deuteronomy 29, 18-21 says... So that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be that when he hears the words of this curse, 
that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land and the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. The curse of the law will come upon this man. And that is why Jesus calls them accursed ones. The curse of the law of God, which is eternal death, is going to come upon them. And all of the curses, the judgments of God seen in this present life, are nothing compared to what will be realized on the day of judgment. That's why he says all the curses of this book will come upon them. All the miseries will come upon them. They haven't seen anything. There, no one has suffered the way that the wicked will suffer for all eternity. We have to take this very seriously. right? We don't want to be accursed, accursed by Christ, and said to depart from me. And this is why we should also pray for our children, for our loved ones, for our friends, for our family. This is the impetus for us preaching the gospel to people. Men are under this curse. They are under the curse of God because of their sin. And unless that curse is diverted, then this is what they will get for all eternity. And the only way for that curse to be relieved is for it to fall upon someone else, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us. This is the only way that we can avoid the curse of God is by Christ becoming a curse for us. And this he does only for believers, only for those who have faith in him. So they are the accursed ones. And what is their portion in the life to come? It is eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire is what awaits them in the life to come. For the righteous, it is eternal life. It is this kingdom of eternal bliss, of happiness, of joy, of being in the presence of the Lord. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more sadness. Whatever makes our life miserable, whatever makes it difficult and sorrowful and hard in this life, all of that will be removed. Because the, re the reason that is the case for us now is because of sin. But there will be no sin in the life to come for the righteous. In heaven, there will be no sin. There will be no devil. There will be no world. There will be no flesh. All of the things that bring about our misery in this life, they will all be abolished. And it will only be eternal joy, happiness, bliss, right, with the Lord forever. But for the wicked, it'll be the exact opposite. Right, Whatever there is of goodness and happiness and kindness will all be taken away and it will be eternal fire in the hell that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because wicked men are just as bad as the devil and his angels, all of them receive the same portion. They all receive eternal fire and eternal punishment. Then verse 42 and 43. The evidence. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. A stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Here, the evidence of their wickedness is that they were not moved with compassion. They had no sympathy on the, their fellow brothers in Christ. They claim to be saints. They claim to be children of God, to be believers, to be followers of Christ. Yet they had no compassion on the body of Christ. When they saw their fellow brother in hunger, in thirst, 
right, in these types of exposures, why did they not come to their aid? They didn't do it at all. They are like the priest and the Levite that we read earlier from Luke chapter 10. When they saw the man who was fell upon by the robbers, they came upon him and they were not moved with compassion or pity for him. But what did they do? They just passed by with a hard, calloused heart against him on the other side. Though the one was a priest and the other was a Levite. Both of them had religious professions. And yet they did not own up to their religion. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit the widow and orphan in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, it says in James chapter 1. Pure and undefiled religion, right? It manifests itself with these deeds of love toward our fellow men and especially the household of faith. Let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6. This is what they did. They did not do any good to Christ. And this can be both by omission, passively, or it can be done actively. We can either actively hate Christ, or we can fail to render the aid. In both cases, we're hating. If we have the ability to help and we don't, then we are hating our brother. And if we are the instigator who is bringing about the affliction, we are hating our brother. Okay? An example, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priests, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said to him, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Here, notice that when Jesus appears to Saul, he says to him, Why are you persecuting me? But at this point, where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God the Father. He is far out of the reach of Saul. But who is Saul persecuting? Well, it tells us in verse 1, threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Whenever he was doing it to the disciples of the Lord, to the body of the Lord, he was doing it to Jesus Christ, doing it to him. He was actively hating Christ in this way by breathing out murders and threats against the disciples. Here, in this case, in 42 and 43, their hatred is more passive because they see the affliction and yet they're not moved with compassion and they do not render aid. They do not come and help when it is in their power to do so. And this would be like James chapter 4, verse 17. To him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? It is a sin. It is a sin. If we know what the right thing to do and then we do not do it, if we know that the right thing, if one of our brothers is put in prison for the faith, the right thing is for me to go visit him in prison and relieve his affliction. And yet I don't do it because I'm afraid that they might throw me in prison. I'm afraid that I might have my sufferings as well. Then I'm committing a sin against God because I know what the right thing to do is. And yet I'm failing to do it out of fear. This is not coming from faith. It's coming from fear. So we cannot 
have this kind of calloused way. Verses 44 and 45. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Here, they call him Lord, professing to be his people, but they have no love of God, no love of Christ, and no love for the body of Christ. Right? The assumption is that, oh, Jesus, if you were here on this earth and we saw you in this condition, we would have come and helped you. But what is the reality? They would not have helped Christ. They would have been the ones that were tormenting Christ. And this is the way it is in every generation. This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 23 when he told the Pharisees, the ones who decorate the tombs of the prophets and the righteous men, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, <clears throat> we would not have taken part in their sins. But Jesus is saying, you would have taken part in their sins. You would have been there persecuting Isaiah. You would have been the ones throwing Jeremiah in that pit. You would have been the ones putting these men to death because you're just like them. And so it is today. Every church out there claims to represent Christ in a true and accurate way. Actually, <clears throat> just Monday, Amy and I took a little trip to Fort Smith, Arkansas. And we drove by this very beautiful church building, building being the key word. A pre, uh, I can't remember. It's a Presbyterian church. And they had their pride flag out. <clears throat> and Jesus, oh Jesus accepts everyone just the way they are. You know, this is what they were saying. You know, we accept everyone because Jesus accepts everyone just the way they are. They are claiming to represent Christ. But if Jesus was here today and preached against homosexuality the way he would preach against it, as it is such a prominent sin in our day, would they love Christ? Would they accept Christ? No. They would hate Christ. They would call Christ a bigot. They would say that he's unloving. They would say he's very judgmental and very harsh. And so if we preach against these things in our own day and so-called Christians rise up and say these things against us, but what we are preaching is consistent with the Word of God, then who are they doing it to? They're doing it to Christ. That's the same as Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Right? Why are you giving me a hard time? Why are you calling me judgmental? Why are you doing these things to me? Everyone claims to represent Christ. And everyone says that they love Christ. And if He was here, they would do all of these things for Him. But if we do not do it for His body, for true believers, right. then we're not doing it to Him. And whatever pretenses we make about loving Christ, it's all a big fat lie. It's all a show we would not really do it for Him. He's given us the opportunity to do it for Him in His body. So we should love one another. 46. Then it, here is the end. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life and eternal punishment. Here together in contrast, in a parallel contrast, right? Eternal punishment and eternal life. The one for the goats, for the wicked, the other for the sheep, for the righteous. Now the point being here is it is impossible that eternal life is a conscious, perfect, blessed, eternal existence but eternal death is simply annihilation, which is what many people believe and teach today. That eternal death, you just cease to exist because God would never torment someone 
in hell for all eternity. Well, if eternal life is eternal existence, conscious existence in heaven, then eternal death has to be conscious existence in hell because he's speaking of them in perfect agreement in parallel together. It would make no sense. But the reason people do that is because they don't like this teaching of eternal death. And the reason they don't like it is because they do not understand God and they don't understand sin and what sin is against God and how he hates it and, and why it deserves this severe punishment. It is a just and a righteous punishment for God to do this. So it will be either eternal life or eternal condemnation, eternal punishment, one or the other. And this is what we have to be prepared for. We don't want eternal punishment. We don't want to hear Jesus say, depart from me, accursed ones. We want him to say, come, you who are blessed by my Father. So we must make sure that we are trusting in Christ. We are repenting of our sins. We are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. As the book of Hebrews is talking about, we're being diligent to enter into that rest. We're persevering. We're, we're, we are doing all that we can to make sure that we are true believers and that we are walking on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. This is what we must commit ourselves to and then watch over each other as well. Because when we watch over each other, we're watching over Christ, right? We're doing it as unto the Lord.